We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. The closing ballad of the musical Hamilton is one that causes me to pause and reflect regularly. And if you've seen Hamilton, you probably have listened to its soundtrack countless times. It's spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it or read the story. Alexander Hamilton dies. He is shot by Aaron Burr. And Eliza, his wife, sings a song. And the title of the song is, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? Eliza Hamilton understood that with the death of Alexander Hamilton came the abrupt conclusion of his accomplishments, and especially since their son Philip was killed in a duel earlier, just a handful of years before the death of Alexander Hamilton, that it was now incumbent on Eliza to tell her husband's story. And by telling the story, it didn't only mean retelling his accomplishments, but it also meant living in a way that was representative of the way in which he lived so that his life would continue to be perpetuated as she continued to tell her story. I think about that line a lot. And I think about the dual responsibility that sits on my shoulders, and it sits on all of your shoulders individually as well. The first part of that dual responsibility is asking the question, who lives, who dies, who will tell your story? Who's going to continue when that time comes for any of us? Because we never know when our next sunrise will be or when our last sunset will be. Who will tell our story? And equally important is sitting on our shoulders today. Are we telling the story of those that have left this world and have been deputized upon us to perpetuate their memory and to tell their story? I have often wondered if God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and the world had become so chaotic, so messed up, so askew that God felt the absolute need to destroy the world and to start over again. Why did God need to save Noah and the animals? Why didn't God just hit the reset button? Why didn't God simply wipe everything out and start anew? Why save trees and fish and birds, and cats, and dogs, and one set of humanity. And the conclusion that I've come to is that God did this because Noah and his family were deputized. 
with telling the story of those that predeceased him. Some that were good, some that weren't so good, but all worthy of a story. I came home last night, maybe 90 minutes before Shabbat, from my 15th trip to Poland, where I have led teens and adults on what is an ancestral visit to what were the, fi the vibrancies and homeland of the Jewish people for more than 500 years, and also one of the largest cemeteries of the Jewish people in the world, where over the course of five years, six million of our ancestors were ruthlessly murdered by the hands of the Nazis. And we took a train, which in and of itself in Poland is a frightening experience, from Krakow to Warsaw. And I put my AirPods in, and I started playing the soundtrack from Hamilton, and it was on shuffle. And that song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, came on in a magnificent way, perhaps with God's divine intervention. And I couldn't help but think of the responsibility on me and those who were with us on this trip of coming back to remember that story and to realize the potency of our responsibility today more than ever in retelling. When we were in Poland, we sat and had dinner with an amazing person by the name of Jonathan Ornstein, who is the director of the JCC in Krakow. He told us a handful of stories of people who have unearthed the realization that they are from Jewish blood. Their ancestry is Jewish, but they never knew it. You see, the war ended in January of 45, Communism took over until 1989, and anti-Israel and anti-Jewish sentiment was very strong from 1969 onward. So if you came back to Poland and you survived the war, the last thing you did was raise your hand and proudly wear your Judaism on your sleeve. And once the grips of socialism and the communist regime got a hold of Poland from 69 through 89, the very last thing you would do is announce and celebrate your religion. So when the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, it took many, many years for people to eventually realize that they have some Jewish blood in them. In fact, we heard the following story. A story of a high school couple, 17 years old, born and raised in Poland, who fall in love. They get married. They're enjoying their life. And some reason or another, the young bride decides to look into her ancestry. And she does. She looks into her ancestry, and she comes home one evening. Her husband returns from work. They are childless. And she says, in essence, hello, honey. I hope you had a great day at work. I did some research, and by the way, I'm Jewish. But there's another step to the story. She said, I did some more research, and I found out 
you're Jewish too. He went to his parents and said he was going to divorce his wife for making up these lies. And his parents said, before you divorce her, maybe there's something you should know. And admitted that indeed they had come from Jewish ancestry and they were afraid to share it for all these years. What makes that story so interesting is that the couple fell in love because they were united in Poland as young skinhead Nazis. Today, they are observant Orthodox Jews. True story. In fact, he is the kosher supervisor for all of the fish that is packed and planted in Poland where most of it is produced today. And if you ask that couple, why did you go from being skinheads to being devout Jews? He said, it's incumbent upon us to tell the story of our ancestors that people like me tried to stop and to squelch. Who lives, who dies, who will tell their story? Jonathan Ornstein shared another story with us about a 22-year-old woman in Krakow, 22 years young, whose grandmother had taken ill and who summoned her to her bedside. She was literally lying on her bedside and she said, honey, I have something to tell you and I'm telling you and only you, my only granddaughter. I'm Jewish. I know this because I was in the Warsaw Ghetto at five years old and my parents collected enough funds to sneak me out of the ghetto and transfer me underneath the wall into Christian hands. My parents kissed me and the only thing I remember them telling me was never tell anyone you're Jewish. So I was raised by these Christians who were your great-grandparents. They loved me, they nurtured me, they took care of me. And until this day, I've never told another soul that I was Jewish. As Jonathan said, if it weren't for the JCC being alive and available in Krakow, this woman who now is a devout Jew and connected to her tradition, whose children go to the JCC in Krakow, she would never have a place to go and to learn her story, yet alone tell it to the next generation. In Warsaw, there is a monument in what was the home of the great synagogue. Warsaw had 300,000 Jews living in its town in 1939. One-third of the population of Warsaw was Jewish. One out of every three people. 60% of the physicians in Warsaw were Jewish. 40% of the accountants and the attorneys in Warsaw were Jewish. 400, 100 synagogues were in Warsaw and the surrounding areas of Warsaw. Today, there is one. In 1945, there was one. One that survived the war. And there was one great synagogue that after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising on May 8th, when the ghetto uprising finally came to its close on May 16th, they burned this synagogue. And parts of its foundation stood and they rebuilt there 
a place that is known today as the Ringelblum Archives. The Ringelblum Archives are a place where Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum, who did not survive the war, who lived in the Warsaw Ghetto, got together a group of people. And this group of people all documented exactly what happened to them from 1938 until 1945. They put this documentation into milk cases and sealed them and buried them underneath the basements of their home and shared with a handful of people where these locations were. Through the years of 1946 through 1968, these documents were unearthed. They were saved and they were preserved. They were read to announce as a form of testimony exactly what happened during those horrible years of the Shoah. Were it not for these documents, hundreds, literally hundreds of people who otherwise would never have been known to have been lost have their testimonies told. Some of these testimonies that were found in the 50s were actually read at the Eichmann trial to serve as a proof text to the punishment that those who couldn't use their voice would still have. How valuable those milk crates filled with those stories are because we would not even know the names of the victims. In the death camp Treblinka, where 900,000 Jews perished in the course of 14 months. There is a project from an Israeli school that took the names of people who we know died there and wrapped it around the entire forest on a banner of all of their names. And it wraps around the entirety of the camp, which is quite massive. When asked how many names are on the banner, there were only 40,000. 40,000 out of 900,000. And today, out of six million Jewish victims in the Holocaust, we're only able to categorize names of a little over 4.2 million. And some of those names and some of those stories would be absolutely lost were it not for the likes of the Ringelblum Archive that saved and preserved them, that allowed us to go in today and see exactly what had happened. Of the 900,000 people that died in Treblinka, 700 caused a revolt shortly before the camp was shut down. Of the 700 that caused the revolt and ran, only 67 people survived and survived the war. 67 people. One of them wrote their testimonies, got it to the ghetto, and preserved it in the Ringelblum archive. And because of it, we know where the camp, which was demolished before the war ended, was, and what the atrocities were that happened there, the facades that happened, because we know that people went out of their way to tell that story. What has me up at night today, and should be having you up at night too, is that the Holocaust is losing its proximal connectivity to us. What do I mean by that? I mean that anyone my age in their 40s and above probably remember meeting survivors when they were younger. 
I remember as a kid what was so common, spending time with elderly people either in a synagogue or when I was in a day school visiting a nursing home, and they would outstretch their arm either to give you a hug or to pass a cup of grape juice or to say the hamotzi, and there you would see the numbers that were on their forearm. And without saying anything, you knew their story. You knew their history. It was something that my generation and the generation above mine was native to. But today's generation is not. Not because of anything we've done wrong, not because we didn't perpetuate the story, but because there are fewer and fewer and fewer survivors that are living today and less people who tell the story. So that makes the obligation all the more potent, but also the challenge all the more difficult to perpetuate the memory of the Holocaust as we lose a generation of those who survived. And it's now on us to realize who lives, who dies, who tells the story. For me, Judaism is a religion that is all about storytelling. When we say we are a people of the book, it is because a book inherently tells a story. It tells the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua. It tells your story and it tells my story. It tells the story that was handed on to the likes of Herzl and Golda and Ben-Gurion and Rabin and even Netanyahu. But are we prepared and are we doing the right things in accepting and absorbing their story and making sure that it continues on? My grandmother of blessed memory once told me, David, someone only dies when they're forgotten from everyone's memory. Someone only dies when they're forgotten from everyone's memory. In that way, my brother is not dead. My father is not dead. My grandmother is not dead. The people who have left this world but have shaped my life and had such an influence are very much alive for me because their memory is omnipresent for me. They are everywhere for me. They're everywhere in sayings that I repeat or in using my Bubby's flatware when we celebrate a holiday or a special occasion at the table. But what I worry is, how will my Bubby's memory be part of my children's holiday table? How will my Bubby's table be part of the way in which they live their lives? And are we prepared to keep that flame alive? All of us sing so loudly and proudly with the chazan, Lador Vador, from one generation to the next. But this generation is living in the wake of the very worst atrocity to have ever befallen any people, but it happened to fall upon ours. And we, we have inherited an awesome task of living perpetuating a memory and of telling a story. It is for that reason that I continue to go back to Eastern Europe to dust off the tombstones, 
to say the Kaddish and to tell the stories of those that lived and to embrace those that have found their story after years of silence and to draw the connection between the two. Because if we don't, then we ask ourselves, who lives, who dies? Who tells their story? What would happen if Lin-Manuel Miranda never was interested in the story of Hamilton and didn't revive it into being the amazing story that it is that has brought a sense of awareness and history to our lives? We have that same awesome responsibility, just like Noah did and just like those after. Let us own that responsibility. Let us embrace it. And let us be proud that we live and that we tell the story for generations to come.